This is They Create Worlds, episode 65, The Rise and Fall of Infogram, part 2. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. I would like to start off by saying thank you to everyone who has decided to kick us a few dollars on Patreon. That's right. As you may or may not be aware, starting with our previous episode, we have launched our very own Patreon account and started accepting donations for this podcast that we bring everybody twice a month. As I'm sure you can imagine, there are costs associated with doing a podcast like this. There's the routine costs, such as hosting fees, domain fees, etc. And then there's also the ambitions to continue making this podcast bigger and better as we strive to deliver the most insightful commentary on video game history uh, anywhere on the web, if I may be so bold to say so. So, Jeff, if you had all the money, all the monies, what would you do as our technical guy, as our sound guy, to further upgrade the, the quality of this podcast we're doing here? Well, the biggest thing I would do first is to improve the soundproofing in this room, which I slowly do unto myself by taking plywood and soundproofing stuff in houses and making acoustic panels, one of which is behind Alex. Right. The audio equipment that we use in this podcast is top-notch. We use very good microphones, we use good mixers, we use sound, good sound editing equipment, but we do not record this in a studio setting. We do just basically record this in a second bedroom that is set up as an office. So we have some soundproofing in here, a small amount that Jeff's been able to do over time, but there's still a lot of crosstalk, which makes editing the podcast difficult and sometimes makes it difficult to get the very best audio quality. So that's certainly one area where donations would help us really improve things. Other than the technical side of things, the other area is just improving the content of the podcast. What I mean by that is going out and finding new information that we can deliver here on an exclusive basis. There's a lot of stuff that we've talked about that's, quite frankly, never been talked about anywhere else. And that's because I have gone out and I have interviewed people that have not been interviewed by anyone else. I have gone out and gone to archives and pulled out resources that few other people have looked at. I've been to the Strong Museum up in Rochester, New York. I've been to the Library of Congress to look at old trade publications and old market research studies that, in some cases, the Library of Congress has the only copy in the world. But there's so many other places that we could go as well. There's the University of Texas at Austin, which has Richard Garriott's papers, Lord British of Ultima fame, amongst other things. There's just going to the Bay Area, where you have Stanford University that has archival collections, including several important Atari collections, and also court cases in the federal courthouse there in the National Archives Repository for the courthouse, I should say. Depositions have turned out to be a very critical source of information on what's been going on at certain companies at certain periods throughout history, particularly some of the stuff that Ethan Johnson primarily, friend of the show, has unearthed up in Chicago, and we can go out and find more resources like that if we have all the monies. 
thinking big here. We don't know what we're going to get, but we're dedicated to using whatever we get to improving the quality of what we consistently deliver without fail twice a month, every month. We do want to emphasize, though, that regardless, the podcast will always remain free. Right now, we're not offering any incentives for donation other than the satisfaction that comes from supporting high-quality podcast content. Even if we do come up with some ideas for incentives at some point in the future to further incentivize donating, we're not going to put up premium-only versions of the podcast. We're not going to wall off anything from anybody. This is a passion of ours to deliver this content, and we want it available to as wide an audience as possible. If you want to throw us a couple of bucks, knowing that at least you're helping us improve uh, what we can give you every month, please do check out our Patreon site. And now, we return you to our regularly scheduled podcast. Last time, we delved into the founding of Infogram, the lead-up to their big ignition, the launch, the thing that really put them into the stratosphere of being a major player in not only the European marketplace, but the world at large. That's right. Just to recap just a little bit, Infogram was a French company founded by Bruno Bonnel and Christopher Sapé. They were kind of a small French computer game company that went through a lot of struggles in the kind of mid to late 80s and early 90s, but then had a string of things go perfectly right for them uh, because they were able to get a couple of contracts from Sega and distributing SimCity in Europe to kind of keep them going just long enough for Philips Interactive Media making the CDI machine to take an interest in them and help them get greater investment and for Alone in the Dark, the first true survival horror game to hit and sell millions of copies and finally give them enough of a capital base and enough buzz that they could take the company public. And that's kind of where we have left the story uh, at the end of part one. All right. So we have Ignition with a lot of investment, a lot of money. They're able to get loans. We have all this money from Alone in the Dark. We have money from other sources coming in. We're launching into the stratosphere. I'm imagining Bruno is buying sub companies left and right. And that is basically what starts happening. I mean, we talked a little bit before about how Bruno Bonell is a very ambitious person. He's definitely a visionary type person. And he sees Infogram not just as some little French publisher. He sees Infogram as a company that can become one of the biggest, if not the biggest publishers in the entire world. But right now, he does not have the tools to be able to do that. Yes, Alone in the Dark is a major hit, but Infogram does not have the distribution in Europe, let alone the rest of the world, to be able to consistently put games into the marketplace and reap the benefits of worldwide success. They're basically still just a French publisher, a relatively small one, that is relying on other companies to expand its reach out into the larger world. At this point, Bruno's goal is to figure out how can we get a distribution network that gives us all of Europe, and even thinking further ahead than that, how can I get out to the rest of the world, and particularly that lucrative market in the United States? This is a actually pretty good period of time for a small company looking to do that kind of thing. 
The video game industry in the mid-90s, as we've discussed in other episodes, is very much in a period of consolidation. There are a lot of smaller companies that are finding that they can't compete anymore that are merging with larger companies to have a bigger footprint in the marketplace and to be more competitive at retail, where shelf space is such a precious commodity. So you have a lot of companies, uh, small to mid-sized companies, that had been highly successful in the past, but were not any longer able to compete and were starting to lose money and were either needing to acquire or be acquired if they were going to continue in the marketplace. Infogram, even though they're small, they've got this investment now and they've got this public offering. And as we've discussed, I believe in other episodes, like our Atari brand episode, the French kind of went crazy in this time period for video game companies. It's kind of a a dot-com boom kind of thing. I mean, this is not the dot-com boom that happened in the United States with Silicon Valley companies, but it's a similar idea where French investors felt that this video game thing and this technology thing was a wave of the future, and these are companies we should be investing in. Not just Infogram, but also other companies that are rising up in this period in the country like Titus Interactive and Ubisoft and whatnot are going public and they're being way oversubscribed on the stock market, on the bourse, which is the French premier stock market, be the equivalent of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in the United States or the Nikkei Index in Japan. The bourse is going crazy for these companies and they're oversubscribed, by which I mean that they're getting investment that's like 30 times earnings or 40 times earnings. I mean, way more money coming in than their earnings would indicate that they deserve. But everyone thinks that this tech thing's going to take off, and so they've got all this investment. So they're a small company, but they have a lot of money, and they're doing pretty well at a time when other small to medium-sized companies in the business, publishers, are not doing well. And so this is a unique opportunity that Bruno and that Infogram take advantage of. The first company he targets in 1996 is a company called Ocean Software. Ocean has for a long time been pretty much the premier British computer game publisher. They are the big guys in Britain. Based in Manchester, they made a big business in the 80s, in the mid-80s up through the early 90s, of getting film licenses and arcade licenses, licenses to hot Japanese arcade titles, converting those to the myriad computer platforms available in the United Kingdom and just absolutely reaping the rewards of that. Now that the British market is becoming more in tune with the international market and consoles are starting to penetrate that British market more than they have in the past. The Genesis, called the Mega Drive in England, is really the first console to really have a substantial presence, and now the PlayStation is starting to have an even more substantial presence. The PlayStation is the first console that is really, from the very beginning of its existence, marketed very heavily in Europe by the parent company. Sony makes a big push into Europe with the PlayStation. So now that this is going on, a company like Ocean that was 
king of the world when it was just a sm- bunch of small British publishers competing on PC hardware, C64, ZX Spectrums, Atari STs, Commodore Amigas, etc., is at a real disadvantage when trying to compete internationally with the big publishers elsewhere that are starting to come in and getting on console. So Ocean is not doing terribly, but is definitely a kind of threatened company. Bruno identifies this as a company that he can come in and acquire and immediately get himself a very good distribution network in Europe. And there's an ocean of America, too, so he'll even get kind of his first inroads into the United States. So in 1996, they uh, opened negotiations with the owners of Ocean, and after a tough period of negotiation, they managed to acquire the company. So Ocean becomes a part of Infogrom. Infogrom immediately then becomes roughly the 10th largest third-party developer in the world. All from one little purchase. That's right. And then they have, soon after that, another one of these strokes of luck with Philips. We talked in the previous episode about the relationship that Bruno Bonnell was able to make with Philips basically because his uncle was a childhood friend of Jean-Claude LaRue, who was one of the big movers and shakers at Philips Interactive Media in Europe. Now flash forward to 1997. The Philips CDI, which, of course, we talked about in the last episode, is a disaster. Because as we discussed in the last episode, it's not a good games machine, and it turns out that multimedia is a dead end as a concept, because you don't get much value out of a multimedia set-top box in your living room. What you get value out of is a multimedia PC that is connected to the Internet. That's how the multimedia dream is realized. So CDI is a disaster. Philips is getting out of CDI, and they have to decide what their future is in the interactive media space. Jean-Claude LaRue has seen this coming. I mean, anyone could see this coming. CDI was a disaster from the moment it launched. No news to anybody that it's a disaster. LaRue had already been diversifying the company because he saw this day coming when Philips would no longer be creating the CDI. If they were going to stay in the business, in the video game business, in the interactive media business, whatever you want to call it, if they were going to stay in that business, they were going to need to have a distribution network that would allow them to get their third-party software, if that's what they were going to do, out into the world. So over the last couple of years, LaRue has been buying up distributors in Britain, France, Germany, etc., around Europe, in order to give Philips Interactive Media a sizable European distribution base to which they could introduce third-party software. Well, come 1997, not only is Philips deciding that they're going to get out of CDI, they just want to wash their hands of this whole thing. They're done. They want out of this business entirely. So now they've got this Philips Interactive Media European division that has this great distribution network that has some value, and they have to figure out what they want to do with it. And it just so happens that LaRue has a soft spot for Bruno Bonnell because of these family childhood relationship things going on. So basically, LaRue comes to Bruno and says, would you like to buy Philips Interactive Media, or at least the European branch of Philips Interactive Media? 
Yes. <laughs> I'll take that. So in 1997, Infogram gets Philips Interactive Media. So they've already got the Ocean Distribution Network. That's a pretty good distribution network. Now they have the Philips Interactive Media Network on top of it. Suddenly, Infogram is basically the number one distribution company, just about. I don't know if they're, they're strictly number one, but if not very close to it, in all of Europe. They have a big distribution base now to get their software out in the world. And this coincides with them having another big hit, their first big hit on the PlayStation, a game called V-Rally. It's a racing game. It's kind of building on this polygonal expertise that they've already developed through Alpha Waves and Alone in the Dark, some of the games we talked about before. This is a period of time when rally racing is very popular, and there's already been a very popular arcade game from Sega, Sega Rally, that has kind of energized the marketplace for this kind of thing. Infogram creates a rally racing game called V-Rally that they release in 1997. Now they have a huge distribution network. They have a hot platform in the Sony PlayStation that everyone has bought. And they have a really good racing game in a racing genre that is at this point really, really popular. I mean, it's just it's a confluence of events, a perfect storm for Infogram. And that game sells roughly five million copies worldwide. Now, for people who may not know, what exactly is a rally racing game? Okay, rally racing is a particular type of race where instead of racing on a track, going round and round on a track, you are actually racing out in the world on real streets, on real terrain, out in the world. So you're racing on all sorts of different types of roads, whether they be paved roads or gravel roads or dirt roads or whatever. You're also racing in all sorts of different weather conditions and... Instead of driving around a track in laps, you're trying to get yourself from point A to point B along all of these actual real roads out in the world. I mean, it's, it's not illegal street racing. I mean, you, you're, you know, you're doing this in a place that's been set aside to have your rally race or whatever, but it's, it's driving in real world conditions instead of zooming around a track over and over. All right. It's a trickier kind of racing game to do. Because if you're just doing a racetrack and you're trying to do realistic physics, you only have one kind of road surface. You're only moving around that track. You're only having one kind of weather condition. I mean, yeah, you could create a game where it's raining or whatever, but you don't have to. There's no expectation of having any other weather condition other than just a beautiful summer day or whatever. So you've got a a fairly constrained set of physical criteria. Rally racing, you have to model different types of weather conditions, different types of road surfaces. There's all of these other physics calculations that you have to do. This is part of the reason why it takes all the way until kind of the mid-1990s before you start getting these rally racing games, because you really need to have a lot more going on in terms of your processing capability to do them justice. V-Rally was kind of the first one to hit really, really big on consoles after Sega Rally was the first one to hit really big in the arcades a couple of years prior in 1995. That game is a massive hit, so Infogram is on top of the world. They're still pulling in all this money from the stock market. They have a massive European distribution network now. They have a small American distribution network 
uh, not quite as robust. And they've got another hit game, even a bigger hit than Alone in the Dark was. So now it is time to take that final big step and get themselves into the U.S. of A. in a real way. They have Ocean of America, so they're already in the U.S., but to really get into the U.S. Once again, you know, Infogrom, I mean, they may be about 10th in the world now, but in terms of the United States, they have no presence. They are not a power player in the U.S. So again, they kind of have to look at the market and be like, okay, who's the stragglers here? Who's somebody that is respectable, but is not a superpower? I mean, they're not going to come in and acquire electronic arts. I mean, that's just not a thing that's going to happen. And so Bruno settles on a company called Accolade. We've probably talked about Accolade a little bit in the past. We've done so many episodes. It's hard at this point to remember who we've mentioned and who we haven't. I think we mentioned them before. Accolade had been founded in 1984 by two of the founders of Activision that, after their stock options vested, decided that they wanted more control and they weren't happy with Activision's direction after the crash and thought that they could do better themselves, Uh, Alan Miller and Bob Whitehead. They were a very respectable company throughout the 80s and early 90s, but not a huge company. They remained privately held by the mid-90s. They were really the only significant publisher left in the United States that was still a privately held company that wasn't a public company. I mean, in the 1980s when they were founded, that was just about what everybody was. But now time has moved on and most companies realize you had to go public to survive, but Accolade was still private. They got really jammed up in the early 90s because of their decision to release unauthorized software on the Sega Genesis. We talked in our Nintendo lawsuit episode very, very briefly about the Sega v. Accolade case, which was a case where Accolade had reverse engineered and copied the code that they needed in order to have their unauthorized Genesis cartridges play on a Sega Genesis. But it just so happened that that code that they copied also included the Sega logo. And that was deliberate. Sega made that piece of code bring up the Sega logo very deliberately to give them another legal recourse against any company that tried to release unauthorized cartridges. Because they did this with real clean room reverse engineering, unlike, say, Tengen, they were fine on the reverse engineering on the copyright side of things. The problem was they were misappropriating Sega's trademark. So then they had to do this whole legal wrangling about whether that misappropriation was allowable under fair use. We won't get into the details of the case, but the courts did finally rule that that was fair use. Sega v. Accolade is a landmark case for that reason. However, while they're fighting this case, they're under an injunction. They can't release any of their Sega Genesis software the company has basically ceased to function (laughs) during the period of time that it's fighting this lawsuit. So it's very ruinous for Accolade. They end up having to bring in new investors. They survive, but they have to bring in a new round of investors. And basically, Alan Miller, one of the co-founders that has kind of become the, the CEO at this point, basically has to give up control of the company to a new group that comes in and gets new venture funding in. 
So the accolade of the mid to late 1990s is is the same company, but it's kind of under different management and it's not as invested a management. And they managed to keep going with this private funding, but it becomes clear to the new CEO, Jim Barnett, that the company is really too small to continue to survive. It really doesn't have enough viable franchises to kind of go public and, and continue to make it on its own. So they decide that they should really be acquired by another company. They kick the tires on EA because they've done some work with EA in the past. EA's not interested. They get a deal together with Activision that is pretty much a done deal. I've, I've talked to some of the Accolade people that were there during this time period, so that's where this is coming from. They thought they had a done deal with Activision, and then Activision backed out on them. They're kind of desperately in need of a buyer at this point. And so even though this French company that's big in Europe may not necessarily be the first thing on their radar, now that their other suitors have kind of rejected them, that's kind of the way forward. So Accolade ends up selling to Infogrom and becomes Infogrom North America. This is the real the real first entree of Infogrom into the United States. That's probably where they should have stopped. They've got a huge network in Europe. They don't have nearly as huge a network in the United States, but they at least have a U.S. presence now. They're really poised to do bigger and better things. I think that this was kind of, at the time, meant to kind of be their end goal, at least for the moment. but. Through circumstance, they learn that a company called GT Interactive is available. Are you very familiar with GT? I'm not sure that we've talked about them too much. We've mentioned them, but as far as details go, I don't personally recall any. GT Interactive was established by the Carey Brothers who had been in the recording business for a long time and then had gotten into the video cassette business back in the early 80s through a company called Good Time Video. That's what the GT is. In the 90s, they decided to move into the computer software field because that looked very lucrative. Two factors caused them to blow up really big, really fast. The first of those is that they secured the exclusive contract with Walmart to supply Walmart with all of its computer software. All of it. Good deal. Yes. Now, obviously, Walmart is not just taking GT Interactive software. They're taking software from all sorts of companies. But any company that wants their software in Walmart has to sell it to GT, who then sells it to Walmart. They're able to do this because they already, through their video cassette business and whatnot, they already have a standing relationship. You see, Walmart, the way it at least worked back then, uh, may still work that way now. You know, you've, you've got your discount racks. Like near the front of the store, you have those discount DVD racks, you know, these days where all the $5 DVDs are, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how it works today. But back in the day, they, they did that kind of same thing with, with the VHS tapes. But Walmart didn't want to bother sourcing all of that. So those displays, those big displays of VHS tapes, were actually brought in by a third-party company like GT Video. 
who took care of all of that. They just had the kiosks and they stocked the kiosks and gave Walmart their cut or whatever. And then Walmart didn't have to worry about that part of things. So GT already had the relationship with Walmart through the VHS. So they basically established the same relationship with Walmart in computer software that they already had with VHS, where we'll just stock your shelves with all the computer software you need. That was the first big thing. The other big thing is that they happened, well, I shouldn't say happened, because these things happen because they do their due diligence and and do what they need to do. Ron Chamowitz, who the Carey brothers hired to be the CEO of the company, is, of course, starting to troll the uh, trade shows and whatnot to find software for the company. Because they're strictly a publisher, they're not a developer. And he gets in with the id software guys. So GT Interactive ends up doing the retail release for Doom 2. That would make them lots of money. They also end up, a couple years later, getting in with Epic. So they do the retail release of the first Unreal games. They do the retail release of Quake. They get some of the hottest independent developers in the business signed to them as publisher. So they have some of the hottest software that's going anywhere, and they have all the software that's going into Walmart. So they get really successful really fast, and then they start expanding. They start acquiring other companies, and pretty soon they are one of the big publishers in the video game business. So what did they do in order to make it so that they were attractive for Infogram? Well, no, it's it's not that they were attractive to Infogram. Um, Infogram wasn't even necessarily, I mean, Infogram did business with GT Interactive, but GT Interactive didn't seem to be for sale. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of things happened. First of all, I mean, the Carey brothers were not strictly dedicated to the video game business. It's the same thing that always happens with any of these companies that come in and make video games a side business. They're interested in the business as long as it's relatively low overhead for relatively high returns because it's a side business. They don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of having to maintain that business once it gets hard. As games are getting more expensive, as GT Interactive is getting more subsidiaries and whatnot, it's becoming a more expensive proposition and not necessarily something that the Carey brothers wanted to invest in. And then also, Walmart decides that they're going to start buying their computer software direct from everybody. GT Interactive loses that golden goose. So now, even though the company's not doing that poorly, I don't think, I mean, they might be losing some money, but it's still a viable company. But the rug certainly has been pulled out from under them, especially with the loss of the Walmart contract. Right. And the Carey brothers, since this is a side venture for them, don't necessarily want to tough that out. So uh, Ron Chamowitz leaves. A guy named Richard Hainman comes in to run the company. He makes it known to Bruno that the company is available. And that would be very, very attractive to Bruno because this gives him another lead in the United States. It gets him this massive distribution network on top of already having Mm -hmm. a developer publisher in the States. Yes. And you see, GT Interactive is bigger than Infogrom. It is a bigger company. 
they would be swallowing whole a company that is actually bigger than they are. Under normal circumstances, that could probably never happen. But you see, GT Interactive was a bit unwieldy. At this point, it had something like 17 subsidiaries, just because of the way it had kind of expanded. They had approached all of the major American publishers. None of them wanted anything to do with that mess. It was too much to digest, too much to integrate, too many subsidiaries to worry about. The big American companies already have their own subsidiaries floating around all over the place. They don't need to digest this monstrosity. Even though GT Interactive is big in distribution, I mean, its biggest hits all came from independent companies like id and Epic. Its software catalog is not appealing enough. Its developer stable is not appealing enough that a company like EA or Activision that is already kind of set with its own distribution network and has its own studios and has more viable properties already in-house isn't really going to be interested in purchasing GT Interactive. But Infogram, which has a need for that distribution network and has its own publishers and developers on its end, it wants to bring that European software to the States. Exactly. For Bruno, it's an attractive offer. And he knows that none of the North American companies want GT. So he basically sets a pretty low price that he's willing to pay, considering the the size of the company. And when GT says, I don't think so, basically refuses to back down because he knows that at the end of the day, GT Interactive is going to have to come back to him because no one else is going to buy it. And the Carey brothers want out. They're not going to stay in this business now. They're done with it. So they buy GT Interactive for $135 million. That may sound like a lot of money, but for a company of GT's size that is much larger than Infogram is, that is actually (laughs) a pretty darn good deal. Now, suddenly, with that GT Interactive purchase, Infogram is an $850 million company. They are now suddenly the second largest third-party developer in the world behind Electronic Arts. Which is quite the skyrocket jump ahead of everything else from 10th place to second. Exactly. They're huge now, and they're huge in Europe, and they're huge in the United States. And now they have this huge studio infrastructure in the United States, too, through GT Interactive. They have all of these franchises under their belt now. They probably should have stopped there. They probably should have stopped before there, as we'll see. But they probably should have stopped there. Well, if they should have stopped before, they definitely should have stopped now. But Bruno Bonnell is not the type to stop. I mean, that's, that's very clear throughout the history of the company. He is going to keep acquiring companies as they become available. What happens next is he learns that Hasbro Interactive is looking for a buyer. Hasbro Interactive is obviously the interactive division of the toy company Hasbro. It was founded with very lofty goals to dominate the interactive entertainment space. The toy companies in this time period are realizing that video games are here to stay, that video games are going to be a more and more and more important part of children's entertainment, and they feel that they need interactive divisions 
if they are going to survive. So Hasbro Interactive uh, is led by a guy named Tom Dusenberry, who has very aggressive goals for growing the company. So they're not just going to release old Hasbro board games or whatever as interactive versions. You know, they're not here to just make monopoly on the computer. He starts acquiring other companies like uh, Spectrum Holobyte and they acquire Avalon Hill. I mean, Avalon Hill is acquired by Hasbro, but Avalon Hill has some computer game stuff. So that part of it kind of falls under Hasbro Interactive. They're acquiring other game companies and they entirely by accident end up acquiring Atari. So you may remember from our Atari brand episode, we kind of covered this a little bit already, but Atari Corporation, the consumer portion that had been owned by Jack Trammell, ended up being merged into a hard disk company called JTS that was not interested in video game product, but needed cash and needed it fast. Atari Corporation was flush with cash because they just won a patent lawsuit against Sega, but they didn't really have any viable product, any viable way forward to continue as a company. So they sold out to JTS, which was just raiding them for their cash, basically. So then Hasbro comes along to JTS and is like, we were thinking of maybe uh, licensing some of your properties to use in our games. They had already had a big hit with a new version of Frogger that had sold something like three or four million copies. I mean, a really big hit. And so Hasbro is kind of looking at reinventing some other old properties to try to get big hits. And so naturally, Atari is a good fit for that. So they're like, well, can we license some of your stuff? And they're like, "Uh, we could do that. Or you could just buy the whole thing from us for a very reasonable price. So Hasbro Interactive's like, okay. So they buy the rights to all the Atari game properties that were owned by Atari Corporation and to the Atari logo and all of this stuff. And now they own the Atari intellectual property just because. So now flash forward to 1999 and things are kind of a challenge for Hasbro Interactive. They're not making as much money as the parent company was hoping. The toy companies are starting to realize that even if interactive is the future, maybe we're not the best people to do it. Mattel in this period of time is going through a very difficult period because they decided they needed an interactive division too, and they bought the learning company in order to create an interactive division, didn't do their due diligence, didn't realize the learning company was a complete and utter mess that was hemorrhaging money out of every possible orifice. And Mattel gets hit with losses so bad by this that the CEOs forced to resign and they sell the Mattel Interactive Division for $1 just to get rid of the debt. Mattel's Interactive Division is going down in flames. Hasbro Interactive, even though it's had a couple of very successful games in Frogger that I mentioned and Railroad Tycoon, is not doing great. It's not doing horrible. This is not a Mattel Interactive situation. But it's not doing great. And Tom Dusenberry is telling them that if we're going to be great in this, we have to throw more money at it. And Hasbro Brass does not want to throw more money at the interactive division. So now they've decided that they made a mistake and they should have never gotten involved. And now it's time for them to sell. And so Bruno learns that this is available. 
And Bruno has a lot of money. Well, at least he has a lot of paper wealth. He has a very good stock price. (laughs) Not necessarily cash on hand. Most of these purchases that they're making, they're making through convertible bonds. They're acquiring these companies largely through debt, which works when your stock price is through the roof, which theirs is right now. So they buy Hasbro Interactive. Which is how they get our infamous French company owning Atari. That's right. That gives them the Atari properties. It also gives them uh, stuff from Microprose and Spectrum Holobyte and uh, all of this other stuff. This is kind of the high watermark for Infogram. The stock is running high. The company is huge. They're number two by revenue. They are huge in Europe. They're huge in the United States. They're huge worldwide. They look like they can do no wrong. But still, as you said, this is the apex of that rocket rise. So I guess we have gravity and market corrections that are going to say, we need to have some words with you. Well, it's more than a market correction. It's the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Well, it was technically a correction slash recession (laughs) slash thingy, but... I guess if you're in that bubble itself and riding it high, you're going to have some issues. Yes, because Infogram is a tech stock. And now suddenly here in 2000, the tech stocks start collapsing. Going down. Yes. The Infogram model only works if they can continue to service the massive amount of debt that they've acquired. As the stock price collapses and as they don't have any other really huge hits, I mean, they have some games that do all right, but they don't have another Alone in the Dark. They don't have another V-Rally. And now that they have this huge overhead because they have subsidiaries all over the United States, they can't really service that debt anymore. And so the company starts losing money and starts losing money big. You know, their their products are still okay products, but it's just there's so much overhead and there's so much debt. They've overextended themselves. We have so much money invested everywhere that we don't have enough cash on hand in order to properly cover all the expenses. So their revenue is lower than their expense rate and you're hemorrhaging money. Exactly. So that high watermark only lasts for a short period and then they start collapsing. What does this mean for the company? It means they have to figure out a survival strategy to continue existing. The debt's there. I mean, they can try to get better line deals from the banks. They can renegotiate. They can ease their debt burden a little bit. But that debt burden's going to be there. They can't really get rid of the debt. They can't pay it off, that's for sure. Their wealth is largely paper wealth. They have too many subsidiaries, so they can shed some of that. And as a matter of fact, this is kind of the end of game development in France for the company. By this time, they were a global company, and they definitely have more studios and more properties in Britain and the United States than they do in France. Frederick Renal is long gone. He left very soon after Alone in the Dark because... 
he was not given what he felt was sufficient credit. When he created the game, when he was doing the credit screen, he wanted to put in there, you know, created by Frederick Renault or a game by Frederick Renault or whatever. Bruno wouldn't let him. He said, no, this is a team effort. And so this is a game not from Frederick Renault, but a game from Infogram. Over time, that really hurt. He didn't necessarily think a huge amount of it right away. I mean, he was kind of disappointed, but he was like, I guess that's the business. But as the game became more and more successful, that kind of gnawed at him. And he really didn't like the way he was being treated at the company. And so he ended up leaving and founding his own developer called Adeline. Grenal's gone. You know, this great genius. They have other people there, but it's really not the focus anymore. The French studio isn't the focus. It's all these things that they have elsewhere that are the focus. So they cut about 70% of their staff, development staff in France. It's basically the end of French development for the company. Their fate is now tied entirely to what their other studios are doing. And so Bonnell is, is cutting some studios and cutting some staff, doing layoffs. He's trying to refinance the debt as much as he can. From a game development perspective, he decides that the future is going to be in pre-existing entertainment properties in other medium, particularly movies, kind of making games based on blockbusters. He starts shedding franchises to get more money for the company because the company now owns a fair number of studios around the world. And so they have a fair number of properties that have done very well, but they're, they're original properties. And they're not, they're not Grand Theft Auto-level properties in terms of how big they are. He doesn't think that these properties are big enough to be worth his time. He wants to get involved in Hollywood productions. He wants to make high, high, high-quality video games based on existing entertainment medium. And he thinks that's where they're going to get their big hits. So he starts throwing money at these productions, like Terminator 3 is an example. And in order to do that, he starts neglecting the original franchises and actually starts selling them for money. So in this time period, they own the Civilization franchise because Civilization is a microprose game. Microprose was bought by Spectrum Holobyte and then Spectrum Holobyte, which by then had renamed itself Microprose, was bought by Hasbro Interactive. So they have the rights to the Civilization games. They don't create them in-house. Firaxis, Sid Meier's studio that he created when he left Microprose, is creating them, but they've got the publishing rights. So he sells the Civilization franchise to Take-Two Interactive in 2004. They have an online portal that they inherited from Hasbro, Games.com. Online portals were a big thing in the dot-com boom. None of them ever panned out very well, but it's a place where you can go and there are simple games you can play. Then if you subscribe, you can get more games, except it turns out nobody wants to subscribe for that kind of thing so that all of these kind of sites never ended up doing much because everyone was happy to play simple free games, but then they didn't want to subscribe. So they sell games.com to AOL in 2006. Wait, AOL's still around in 2006? Yes. Uh, they have a moderately successful 
franchise called the Stuntman franchise, a, a vehicle simulation franchise that's moderately successful. They sell that to THQ. They have the Driver franchise, which was created by Reflections. So the Driver franchise was kind of Grand Theft Auto 3 before Grand Theft Auto 3, but not quite. It got the whole open world, three-dimensional driving game thing going kind of before Grand Theft Auto did, but it didn't have, you know, fully walking around on streets and all of that. But it was a technologically impressive series that kind of did Grand Theft Auto 3 in a way before Grand Theft Auto 3 did, but never ended up becoming as big as the Grand Theft. But it was still a respectable enough series, and they sold that off as well to Ubisoft. They're shedding all of these franchises for cash to try to keep going. And at the same time, they're investing Boku bucks in games based on pre-existing entertainment properties. And the big one that they invest in is the Matrix franchise. Oh, yeah. They were the ones responsible for the Matrix Reloaded video game. (laughs) Another one that turned out really well. Yes. No. But that but that's later on. That's later on that they have the the problems with it. In the beginning, this one actually is a pretty good idea. There's just one problem. There's already a video game company that has the rights to make a Matrix game. And that's Shiny Entertainment. The people that brought you Earthworm Jim back in the day. Bruno goes to his board and is like, "So I got good news and bad news. The good news is there's this Franchise called The Matrix, and by, by now The Matrix is already huge, because this is 2003 when this is happening, 2002-2003. Uh, the first Matrix movie came out in, like, 1998. So The Matrix is already a proven phenomenon. This is before the sequels soured everybody onto the whole Matrix idea. He comes to the board and is basically like, I have good news and bad news. The good news is there's this great entertainment property called The Matrix, And it's going to be really big, and we can make a game and sell millions of copies. The bad news is we have to buy shiny entertainment in order to do this. By this time, Jean-Claude LaRue, as I mentioned very briefly in the previous episode, is chairman of the board of Infogram. After he left Philips Interactive Media and whatnot, he's actually become the chairman. And he's like, oh, what? We are losing money hand over fist because we acquired a bunch of companies and now you're telling us the solution to this is to buy more companies. And Bruno's like, yeah, yeah. They approve it. The board approves it. But that's kind of the end of this relationship between LaRue and Bonnell. I mean, I, they may remain friends. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't mean that they like suddenly hate each other. Uh, soon after that, LaRue resigns as, as chairman of the board and <laughs> washes his hands of the company. Because he's not comfortable with that. But they, they do it. They buy Shiny and they get that Matrix game. Uh, and this is Enter the Matrix. The game that was being worked on at this point was one called Enter the Matrix. And it's actually a massive hit. It does something like 5 million copies worldwide. So that was actually a kind of savvy move. At least in that moment. But it's not enough. The company's still losing too much money. The other things like Terminator 3 that they're throwing money at don't do nearly so well. And even with that big Matrix success, they are still falling apart a bit as a company. (laughs) It's just, it continues to lose money. They're selling off so many franchises that they're starting to gut the company's ability to even create 
interesting new product because so many of the properties that they've had success with in the past, even if they were only modest successes, are now being sold off to other companies. So that makes it harder and harder. And they, they're closing down studios and they're kind of in what seems to be a bit of a death spiral. Finally, that does result in the dismissal of Bruno Bonell in April 2007. He leaves the company. <laughs> he was probably forced out, I imagine, but <laughs> one way or the other, he leaves the company. We do not require your services anymore. That's right. And the company's shares on the stock market jumped 24% when that was announced. Wow. He must not have felt good when he uh, was he saw that. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that his style just wasn't working anymore. I mean, it got infogram to a certain point. The fact that he's visionary, the fact that he saw his company as not just any old company, but the biggest and the bestest, did get infogram to a certain point. The problem was he didn't know when to stop. If they had stopped with Accolade, they would have been a mid-sized publisher that was in pretty good shape. Now, I'm not saying that that would have necessarily been enough for them to survive long term. I don't mean if he had stopped there that Infogrom would still be a powerhouse today. I mean, maybe not. A lot of stuff happens in between. But if he stops with Accolade, he's got the U.S. presence he needs. He's got the huge European presence. And he's kind of set. But he can't stop there. When he has this deal that he knows he can make with GT Interactive that's just a great deal, he can't help himself, and he makes that deal. And it was a good deal. It was like the snake that, you know, swallows the, the, uh, the big rabbit and then chokes on it is essentially what happened because they ended up with a much bigger company that was unwieldy in its subsidiaries, and they could not digest that. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes on from that, and he buys Hasbro Interactive. He didn't know when to stop. He didn't know when to get the cash on hand he needs. Exactly. And maybe it would have worked if the dot-com bubble hadn't burst, but the dot-com bubble did burst. After that, September 11th happened, which caused even more recession. And, uh, you know, the, the stock is just collapsing. And, and No one's happy. <laughs> yep. And so his method just wasn't working. Honestly, from everything you've told me, they should have just stopped at the acquisition of GT. I think that might have been the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So now you have an absolute mess that people have to try to figure out how to solve. And it's made more complicated because you have these two separate entities in existence. Because Infogram is the parent company of the North American company. But it doesn't own the entire company. It's actually the 51% holder. So it's the majority owner, but it's not a wholly owned subsidiary. So you have Infogram SA in France, and then you have what is now called Atari Incorporated in the United States. We talked about that part of things in the Atari brand episode, where basically because the Atari name has better recognition, they take their North American Infogram subsidiary... And in 2003, they rename it Atari. And at that point, they actually spun it out onto the NASDAQ stock exchange. So 
Infogrom and Atari are two different companies, and they have the majority ownership in Info in Atari Incorporated, but they don't have full ownership in it. You have investors in Atari Incorporated basically taking control and trying to right that company. At the same time, you have Infogrom in France that's kind of in charge of everything and is also trying to right the ship of the company. So it's it's really quite a mess. And nobody really ever figures it out. They have a succession of CEOs at this point that try to do something and, and they just can't. In the United States, a guy named David Pierce is brought in to kind of restructure and write the ship because he had a lot of experience in the movie business. He had helped reorganize Columbia TriStar for Sony. So he had experience in turning around kind of companies that needed a reorganization. So he's brought in and he can't do much there. So he ends up being replaced. In France, a guy named uh, Patrick Lillo is made the CEO of Infogrom. He outlines a new strategy for the company in early 2008, in which they decide that they're going to reinvest in some of their more successful franchises, like Alone in the Dark and the D&D license, which they've held for several years at this point while also moving more heavily into the mass market on the Wii and the DS, because, of course, this is the height of the Wii fad, and then create more of an online presence and try to turn themselves into more of an online game company as well. So kind of three different objectives that are all very different from each other. (laughs) But that's how they're going to try to turn things around, theoretically. And then within... Weeks of making that pronouncement, he's replaced by David Gardner. David Gardner had been at EA Europe for a long time. He was a programming prodigy that joined EA way back in the in the early 80s and then was sent over to Europe to kind of co-run EA's European operations when they were getting those set up. So he has a lot of experience running a large European company because he's been running the European subsidiary of EA for a long time, which is a big deal in and of itself. So then David Gardner is brought in to be CEO. And then he very quickly brings in Phil Harrison to be his president, who is the principal executive that was responsible for setting up Sony's European development infrastructure when they were first doing the PlayStation back in the early 90s. So this is kind of a superstar team of two executives that have a lot of history working with European developers. They are all revved up to really kind of invest in high-quality AAA titles, attract top talent, and just turn this company around. Only problem is this is a company that is hemorrhaging money. They don't have the cash to do all of these ambitious things. And so very quickly, they make the decision to sell their powerful European distribution infrastructure to Bandai Namco. So one of the crown jewels of their video game empire, that great European distribution infrastructure that they created by kind of combining Ocean and Philips and all of that, is now gone. There's really not going to be a focus on Europe anymore at this point. 
the focus is really going to be, I guess, on that online space that they've talked about moving into, because obviously you don't need retail distribution to do online, and on the United States. So Phil Harrison leaves. (laughs) Within a year of, of arrival, he's gone because within months of arrival, I think he's gone because now that they have no European distribution infrastructure, they're not going to be doing European product and they don't need a guy that knows how to work with European developers to be their president anymore. So Phil Harrison is gone within months of taking that position. David Gardner stays on as CEO, but he can't fund all of those big fancy games that he had been hoping to fund because the company just doesn't have the money. On the American side of things, Gardner does bring Atari Incorporated back into Infogrom. So we talked about how they were the 51% holder of that North American company that had been spun out. He actually reacquires all of the outstanding shares and makes Atari Incorporated a wholly owned subsidiary of Infogrom again, because his plan had been to establish new studios and really reinvigorate development and put Atari back on top in that way. But they didn't have the money to do it. And so in the end, that all just kind of falls apart again. Gardner stays on longer than Harrison does, but eventually in December of 2009, he leaves the company as well. He joined in January 2008, and now he's gone in December 2009. And the company's going to have its third CEO in two years. Jeffrey Lappin, who was the chief operating officer and had been a veteran of Take-Two Interactive and other companies. So another change at Infogram, which by now is known as Atari. Because as we talked about in our Atari brand episode in early 2009, they actually renamed Infogram Atari SA. So now Atari SA is a thing and Atari Incorporated is a thing and they're all Atari. There is no more Infogram. It is now Atari. Jeffrey Lappin kind of putzes around for about a year. The company's still not doing well. The company's still hemorrhaging cash. They can't get established. They wanted to move into the online game space, but they haven't been able to do anything with that. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a train wreck, you know? It's a car crash in slow motion or something. Once again, Lappin can't save it, and so he's replaced. He's ousted and replaced by Jim Wilson, who is actually the president of the North American subsidiary, Atari Incorporated. Well, Jim Wilson is not able to do any more than anyone else. I mean, it's just they release very few games in this period. The games they do release aren't very good or don't do very well. They keep trying to transition into new areas and then don't have any good properties, and they still have all of this debt. They've refinanced some of it. By this point, most of their debt is held by a single company called Blue Bay High Yield Investments, who has basically taken over the rest of the debt. They're the ones that are pulling the strings behind the scenes. They kind of took over the debt in 2008, and they've been the ones that have been kind of pulling strings ever since and causing a lot of the the sell-offs and the turmoil and replacing of CEOs and all of that stuff. Finally, in 2013, Blue Bay has decided they've had enough. 
they're done with this. The company is beyond saving. The company declares Chapter 11 bankruptcy in January 2013. And Blue Bay decides that they don't want anything to do with this anymore. And so they end up selling out their share of the company to a holding company called Care Ventures, which has been founded by a former Atari executive named Frederick Chesney. I may be mispronouncing that again, but Frederick Chesney decides that he can make some money essentially off of this Atari brand because even though the company is beyond saving at this point, because they haven't had a successful game in years and they have no money to expand or grow or try to do new things, they still own all of those old Atari properties and they own other properties that they've picked up over the years too. They've sold a few off, but they still have the majority of them. They still have the Atari brand, they still have the Atari logo. There's power in the name Atari still amongst a certain set of people. He basically buys the company in order to profit off of all of that. And the way he decides that he's going to do that is he is going to auction off all of the company's intellectual property piecemeal. He's basically going to carve up Atari and sell it bit by bit to interested bidders. So in the middle of 2013, Atari declares that they're going to have an auction of its assets. They sell a few things off. They sell a very small number of things off. So Total Annihilation, a famous real-time strategy game from 1997 that they owned because they bought Humongous Entertainment or bought the parent. I think GT Interactive may have owned Humongous Entertainment, but they sell that off to a company. Battlezone gets sold off to a company. Uh, Star Control, which was an old Accolade franchise, gets sold off. A couple of other things get carved out of the company. But for whatever reason, they end up reversing course and deciding not to do the auction. I assume because he realized that he wasn't going to get as much money as he had hoped to get out of it. That, that's the logical reason why. The auction is halted after only a very small number of very minor properties are sold off. And at that point, he embarks on a new idea, which is difficult to fathom right now, and it's hard to see where it's going. The company emerges from bankruptcy and cuts all of the staff. So there's only just a teeny, teeny, tiny staff of people left at Atari and maybe under 20 people. I mean, a really small amount of staff. They've started basically just licensing the Atari name and logo to whoever will buy it from them (laughs) or license it from them. They've tried the online gambling business. They've tried kind of cheap mobile games based on old Atari properties. They've uh, done Kickstarters to try to relaunch new versions of Atari properties. And they have this thing in development that they call the Atari Box. Well, actually, they just renamed it to the Atari VCS, hearkening back to the classic Atari games console. But until then, it was called the Atari Box that is going to be something. They're launching a Kickstarter for it, but they haven't even really revealed what it is. It'll look vaguely like an old Atari VCS, and it'll uh, be in your living room, and it'll 
I thought it was something that was pretty much akin to the NES Classic or the Super NES Classic. Well, they've released, you know, flashback consoles. Uh, literally, they're called that, the Atari Flashback series. They've been doing those for years that have old Atari games on them. That's not what this is, or at least if that's what this is, they haven't announced that that's what this is. Right now, it's just, it's vaporware. They've just said it's the Atari box. It'll be like this Atari thing in your living room. They haven't said how it's going to work. They haven't said what it's going to cost. They haven't said what's going to be in it. And they're kickstarting it. I mean, it may well be vaporware. Atari, ever since uh, Frédéric Chesney has taken over the company in 2013, has released a couple of cheap versions of old games on, on mobile and whatnot, but has barely done anything. There's really no guarantee that they're ever going to do anything again. I mean, this may just be, you know, a, a ploy to kind of milk a few old Atari fans for old nostalgia's sake without really delivering much of a significant product. I mean, that's kind of been what the MO has been over the last few years. It's kind of a sad and pathetic fate for a third-party developer that for one brief shining moment was the second largest third-party developer in the entire video game industry. That's really unfortunate and a really big fall from grace. Yeah, and uh, I mean, kind of inevitable based on what happened. I mean, yeah, they became the number two third-party developer, third-party publisher, I should say, in the whole world, but the price that they paid to do that was too high. And so that's why you've had all of this like slow disintegration of the company until now it's like 10 people in an office somewhere that are just licensing the Atari name and may or may not develop some kind of whatever that'll hook up to your television or something. And that's Infogrom slash Atari SA today. Quite the epic rise and fall from grace, especially the conga line of CEOs as they're trying to figure out what exactly are we doing? Yeah, they just, they never really earned it, you know? I mean, they became this large third-party publisher because they bought all of these other moderately successful companies and smashed them together into a huge company. Since all of these companies were only moderately successful, None of them had any really big franchises that you could use to keep generating more revenue. They just had modest kind of hits. Uh, The Matrix game was big, but then they did Matrix Path of Neo after that. That was just a disaster. The game itself was bad, and the Matrix franchise had fallen from grace after it turned out the Wachowski siblings didn't have this big, deep thing, and it was just nonsense. So that fell apart on them, and they just didn't have the big franchises to move things forward. And when they finally got a CEO in that was going to try to get them back heavily into development and try to find them big franchises again, it was too late. They didn't have the money to follow through on his vision. I guess that leads us with the big question I ask at the end of every episode, all the non-two-parters anyway. What do we delve into next time? Well, it's been a little bit of time since we've looked at a specific game or game franchise, which we do like to do from time to time. This is about the history of video games, after all. and Not just the companies or various aspects of the industry. We occasionally do like to talk about certain video games. 
exactly. And certainly one of the more significant video games that's come out in the past two decades and is, in fact, uh, I believe 20 years old this year, is the game Half-Life from Valve, a company that used to make video games back in the day. Yes, before Steam. So uh, Half-Life and its sequel, Half-Life 2, very, very significant games that pushed forward uh, storytelling and narrative in the context of action games in a very significant way. Just a a huge paradigm shift for the first-person shooter that continues to resonate today. And we haven't really discussed uh, something from relatively recent history uh, in a while. I realize that's 20 years ago, but since we really try to stay in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, late 90s is actually (laughs) pretty recent for what we're doing. I think this would be a good time to uh, revisit Half-Life on its 20th anniversary. All right. We will investigate half of a life next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 